Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome back to Newsweek Radio. I'm Jesse Edwards, and today I had the opportunity to sit down and talk with cannabis pioneer and activist Andrew D'Angelo. With 23 states now in America with recreational cannabis and 38 that allow one form of medical or another, dispensaries are everywhere. And for the most part, it seems like the hippies have won the war on weed that the U.S. government waged against them decades ago. California became the first state to allow medical cannabis use when voters passed the Compassionate Use Act in 1996. And our guest was right there from the very beginning, nearly 30 years ago. Since then, he and his brother built a chain of high-end cannabis dispensaries and started The Last Prisoner Project, a nonprofit dedicated to cannabis criminal justice reform. Andrew, thanks for being here. Hi, Jesse. Great to be with you today. Is cannabis the preferred nomenclature these days? I mean, professionally, at least like, uh, you know, business casual? Well, yes, I guess cannabis is the, the preferred term for folks like me. The word marijuana actually is a beautiful Mexican word and has a great history in Mexico, but it it was a little bit co-opted and used for nefarious purposes by Harry J. Anslinger and the rest of the uh, reefer madness crowd, you know, in the late 30s and 40s and 50s. I always thought it was a very beautiful word, too, and it was always unfortunate. It was kind of demonized over the years, but uh, maybe we can bring it back someday. Oh, absolutely. It's going to come back. It's real. It really is a beautiful word. <laughs> what is the state of cannabis in America today? Before we kind of dig into your story a little bit, legalizations come so far, like it seems like it's come light years over the last 10, 20 years, but at the same time, not so much in other places. And we're kind of just in this stagnant malaise right now with, with the movement that seemed to have so much potential. It still seems to have a lot of potential. There's still a lot of hope. Have, have we kind of hit Peak cannabis, or where do you see it from your perspective? Well, malaise is a good word. I, I, I also like to use the phrase, it's a hot mess right now. But we have to remember perspective, right? It, in the 1940s and 50s, reefer madness and what was happening with people getting locked up and, and still getting locked up for cannabis you know, possession with intent to distribute is is what most people are locked up for now. Um, So whatever problems that we're experiencing in the legal market, we're not getting locked up. And that's a much worse outcome for all of us and for the folks that are still in prison. But but it's a hot mess right now. People have lost a lot of money. Um, the frameworks for legalization in almost every state are, are flawed at best, if not broken. And we have a problem with dual markets, right? We have, we have one legal license market in legal states like Oregon, where you are, California, where I am. Uh, um, but we also have a pretty big underground market. Uh, California's market share, about 75% is the underground market. Um, New York is 
probably 99.8% is the underground market. Um, they struggle to open licensed cannabis retailers in New York. And so starting a new industry is never easy, uh, especially one that is, is mer emerging from the shadows and, and, and public policy people just don't have a clue. Uh, they don't really listen to people like me. They, they listen to more corporate oriented folks um, that they're more familiar with. And, and those folks like to erect barriers to entry and build moats around their businesses with public policy and anything else they can do. Um, and if it worked, that would be one thing, but it's not working. And they're all drowning in their own moats that they've built uh, for themselves. And, and so all of these problems are, are causing investors to flee the space and capital is very constrained. And, you know, without capital, you don't have capitalism. <laughs> um, you don't have, have, have robust markets. So um, we're in a hot mess moment right now. And I think malaise is, is, is what most people that you'll talk to in the industry, you'll feel that, you'll hear that sense of malaise in their voice and in their body language. So take us back to the beginning. How did you become a cannabis activist in the first place? Back in the day, tell us about the first time you smoked it. What was your childhood like? And, you know, were your parents uh, cannabis activists also? My parents were activists, but they were not um, cannabis activists. They, they, they were, they answered the call of John F. Kennedy when he ah. said, don't, ask what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And they moved to Washington, D.C. My dad became a bureaucrat um, and worked for the government, worked for the Kennedy administration as a very young man, just out of the army. He got drafted and, um, and, and he um, and started his career and started to have children with my mom. My older brother, Steve, who's 10 years older than me, he's the one that really paved the way in the cannabis trail for both of us. And, and he became... You know, he turned me on to cannabis when I was a teenager in high school. Um, I had experienced an injury. I was trying to be a professional athlete, so I, I wasn't into cannabis. Uh, but when I got hurt, I was my career as an athlete was over and, and I was enormously depressed as well as in a lot of physical pain. My brother just handed me a joint in my mom's kitchen one day and said, you need to this is going to make you feel better. And a little voice inside my head said, it's time to take that joint because and my brother had offered it to me a lot um, but previous to that uh, moment. And it immediately did make me feel better and not just physically, but it gave me hope. It, gave, it made me realize that there's more to life than sports and that, you know, I could be whatever I wanted to be and I could dream whatever I wanted to dream. And, and that, optimism was pumping through me from that joint and it was so powerful that i decided right then and there that cannabis was going to be in my life every single day and i was going to trade cannabis just like my older brother and um try to carve a life out for myself this is 1983 you have to understand this is during ronald reagan so it was quite risky to have cannabis in your life on the daily basis and to trade cannabis and to advocate for cannabis. So even if you just wore a little pin with a weed leaf on it, you'd get searched and you'd get, you know, all kinds of stigma would be thrown your way. And 
I remember that happened to me. I had a t-shirt on with a weed leaf my and during orientation of college because I wanted other kids to know that there was somebody else that they could share cannabis with. And my, one of my advisors took me aside and made me change my shirt and said, you can't wear that um, and expect to succeed on this campus. So, um, you know, it was a much different time then, but that's how I got started. And, 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 you know, I didn't like being underground. And so we worked very, very hard to change laws. And in 1996, um, we were able to change the first law here in California with Prop 215, a voter initiative that legalized medical cannabis uh, here in California. And then, you know, that's when everything, that's when sort of the starting gun went off for legalization. And here we are today. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. So your brother got busted by the feds, right? And that had a pretty big effect on you growing up? Yeah, well, actually, yes. Previous to me consuming cannabis, when I was nine years old, my brother was 18, he got busted with some weed in an airport, Dulles Airport, to be exact. And in the, it was a small amount of weed, but even in those days, especially in the state of Virginia, which is where that airport's located, uh, the federal government has jurisdictions over the airport. So my brother was locked up in a state prison that the federal government, he was convicted under federal law, but the, the, the feds rented this little jail out in the middle of nowhere, Virginia. It took hours and hours to get to. And I was nine years old, and I remember visiting him um, in, in jail. And it had a big impact on me and my family. My parents were divorced at that time, and we had to drive out there together. And just the drive there and the drive back was bloody uncomfortable. Um, a little kid with two divorced parents that didn't like each other very much having to drive out to this jail and visit uh, his older brother who's locked up in jail. Right. And um, so that was, that informed me, I think on a subconscious level. And now, you know, when I started trading cannabis, a lot of people I know got busted. A lot of people I did business with got busted. People they did business with got busted. And so um, working with, you know, just just supporting people as they go through getting busted and, and, and even incarcerated stayed with me, you know, all these years. So fast forward to what, the mid 90s, late 90s, California, you guys got into the market and started opening dispensaries. Was this uh, around the time of medical only in California? Yes, it's medical only. Um, it took a few years after we passed the law in November of 96 for us to open our first dispensary unfortunately my brother got busted again in dc i think in 2001 so um uh we had to deal with that legal case and get through that and then we realized that this was after we had passed medical in dc but the federal government would not allow us to implement the law and so if we had been able to implement that law my brother would not n never been busted 
the Republicans had control of Congress in the yeah. Clinton administration and Newt Gingrich and them came in. And so they had jurisdiction over the D.C. budget, um, like like Congress basically appropriates D.C. budget. And if the district wants to do something that the federal government doesn't like, they won't fund it in yeah. appropriations. And that's what happened with the medical um, bill that we passed, Initiative 59, I think it was. Uh, and um, so they did not fund it. And so the framework could not be implemented. And it just sat there for years and years and years in D.C. until I don't know when it was, five or eight years ago, the city and the Congress finally were able to fund the appropriations for that mm -hmm. and, you know, start to stand up a little bit of a medical industry in D.C. It's still very constrained, but but it's 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 been getting a little bit better. Um, but, yeah, the, the, the it was blocked. Um so then we opened our first license after we got through that legal case. <laughs> we said we need to get to a place where we can do this legally or we're going to spend the rest of our lives in prison. So we moved to California. And by the grace of God, the city of Oakland was the first city to issue licenses for cannabis dispensaries. We applied for one. And we, we won the license. And then we, we started Harborside in October of 06. I think we got the license, I don't know, a year or so before that, but it took a while to find a location and build it out and so forth. Um, and um, it was brand new and never really been done before since Prohibition in 1937. And, and so we, we worked very hard to make sure that our dispensary was something that didn't resemble a a prison or a jail or a check cashing place. It was a dangerous a place back in the day. Yeah. In fact, the very first day of our operations in the town just south of Oakland, a little town called Hayward, um, the DEA was raiding dispensers. Yeah. And, and we had a team meeting and said, oh, my God, should we open today or not? And we decided to open um, regardless of what was happening with the raid. Yeah, it took a lot of courage. Um, it, you know, frankly, we had a lot of balls. Um, we were angels and warriors, you know, bringing this to light. And, and so it, it was dangerous. Uh, and in fact, in 2012, the federal government did, they didn't rate the DEA didn't rate us, but the justice department, um, tried to close us down with what is called a forfeiture action. Um, and, you know, luckily we, we were able to beat that case, um, and, and stay open, but yeah, the feds came after not just us, but a lot of people, um, in the years, you know, call it Oh five to 2018. Yeah. And, you know. It's so easy to forget the dynamics of major events like this that happened almost 30 years ago, especially this difference between how medical and recreational were rolled out. Right. Yeah, I mean, the medical framework in California was excellent because it was written by the cannabis community. It was written by entrepreneurs and activists. But the, um, the adult use framework was written by corporate people and lobbyists. Um, and so, unfortunately, the framework is, is, is really bad in California right now. And, you know, I, we have a framework in New York right now that's trying to do things a little bit differently, stumbling badly, but trying to do things a, a little bit differently. Um, again, that dual market problem is dogging everybody right now. 
And so it's a it, it, it's been a roller coaster ride. Yeah. On one hand, when we win elections or we we legalize in a particular jurisdiction, we jump up and down and we celebrate. Um, on the other hand, most of those frameworks have serious flaws in them. And then as entrepreneurs, three months or six months or nine months down the road, we realize how wrong the framework is or, or how much we overcompromise uh, to get legalization done. So what's your take on federal legalization? Politicians on both sides seem to be toying with the idea in an, an unusually bipartisan fashion, but nothing is actually being done about it, right? Look, the federal government has no excuse. I was at South by Southwest. I had Nancy Mace on my panel. I had Earl Blumenauer, who's from Oregon, by the way. He might even be, uh, I don't know if he's as far south as you are. He's no. part of Portland, Southern yeah. Portland. Um, and interestingly enough, Nancy Mace's framework um, in many ways is better than than the Democratic framework. But... There's just no excuse at the federal level. The, in 1946, LaGuardia did an ex ex extensive study on the safety of cannabis and concluded it was safe. <laughs> they love to do uh, studies, don't they? There's like a study every five minutes. Um, yeah, there, it's been studied to death. That's yeah. why I say there's no excuse. There's been study after study after study. No plant has been studied more than this. And the first thing that, you know, Blumenauer says on my panel is, we, uh, we're, we're not going to be able to wave fairy dust and legalize weed. We have to be incremental. And the first thing we should do is, you know, my research bill. Well, yeah. do we really need to do more research on a plant that's in research more than any other plant <laughs> before we can, you know, empty the prisons and, and have some kind of federal, at least decriminalization and descheduling yeah. of cannabis? If the feds don't want to touch it, that's fine kick it back to the states but don't be in hindrance and 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 and, it, and do the right thing deschedule and de decriminalize uh, certainly republicans that are on our side like nancy mace i got lots of problems with nancy mace's politics on lots of different issues but with cannabis she's right on she's spot on okay yeah. her framework has retroactive release for cannabis prisoners very important um, and her framework basically has a very low tax rate of 3% that the feds tax. And, um, and she kicks it back to the states and she lets the states decide, you know, whatever they want to do. Now, that can cut both ways for us, right? You know, look at Texas. Texas is not in, doesn't have any legalization, really. Um, they have a very, very limited Basically, if you're dying or you have epilepsy, you can get some cannabis oil in Texas. But if you're not dying and you don't have epilepsy, you can't. Um, uh, but you can walk into a CBD shop and get Delta 8 or Delta 9 THC. Um, um, and even THCA flower in Texas is, is widespread now. So, um, you know, it's it's it, there's there's some positives and negatives to having a state-by-state -state framework patchwork across the country. Um, I would like to eventually see something more unified um, and certainly interstate commerce needs to happen, you know, eventually too, because the supply chains are really inefficient and too expensive and, 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 and they're hindering profitability.
All right, let's shift gears really quick to the last prisoner project. Why did you start it? How does it work? What does it do? Well, I'll be happy to talk about last prisoner project. About five years ago, Steve and I were looking sort of towards the end of our tenure at Harborside, the adult use framework in California basically made it so that you had to have a lot of scale and, and you had to have a lot of cash to survive. We were able to raise the cash and build the organization scale with vertical integration, but we didn't really want to run a publicly traded company, which now it's called Statehouse now, not Harborside, but it's a we the our investors wanted to take the company public. And that was not something that we exactly agreed with <laughs> and or, or knew how to do, right? We didn't have any experience with that. So we took an exit. And th the first thing we did was start Last Prisoner Project, which is a nonprofit organization. And the mission is very simple, free all cannabis prisoners, not just in the United States, but we hope on the whole planet. Uh, and and there was no other organization that was really dedicated to post-conviction prisoners. So there are lots of people that help prisoners put money in their commissary accounts or help them with their appeals. Um, but but there weren't wasn't a lot of post-conviction work being done uh, with cannabis prisoners. So we wanted to sort of be in that lane, um, and and we. We went out to the cannabis community, Steve and I, with, you know, a very simple mission. And that is we cannot legalize weed and create billions of dollars worth of wealth while at the same time keep these folks in prison. It's just a moral, it's morally wrong. You can't create wealth for yourself and not share, use some of that wealth to fund organizations like Last Prisoner Project um, to get people out of prison. So that was, and the industry and the community to everyone's credit has responded. And now Last Prisoner Project, five years later, we are an official 501c3 organization. You can write off all your donations on your taxes. We bring in three and a half million dollars a year. Um, most of that money goes right into the pockets of prisoners or their families or their commissary accounts or reentry grants. And we're, you know, we've been successful getting some very long-term prisoners that were serving almost life sentences for all intent and purposes. And in some cases, life sentences uh, like Michael Thompson and Richard DeLisi and, and some others, they're free people now. And, 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 and some of them are in the cannabis industry. And Richard DeLisi is a great example. He has a brand called Deliciosio. And it's a wonderful little cannabis brand. He's working with um, folks in Florida and he's got a couple of um, deals in other states. And we're seeing a lot of this, you know, folks that were locked up or impacted by the war on weed um, now able to get licenses and, and, and start businesses. So it, it's sort of coming full circle for that community. But, you know, we still have thousands and thousands of people locked up um, for cannabis and the federal government, Joe Biden is not getting people out of prison. I, I hate to break it to everybody. There's a difference between being convicted of cannabis possession 
and being convicted of cannabis possession with intent to distribute. Um, the latter is, um, you know, a federal fence with mandatory minimums. And I, I know several people who got five or 10 year mandatory minimums just in the last six to 12 months. Uh, and this was basically Joe Biden's Justice Department locking people up. Was that in, were those cases in pot friendly states necessarily or? Yeah, one of them was in Pennsylvania. One right. of them was in Michigan. One of them was in Washington, D.C., right next to giant companies that are that have a license to do the exact same thing people are going to prison for 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 a long time you know and when you get locked up for federal it's you're going to do about 80 percent of your time you don't get a lot of time off for good behavior you don't get a lot of ability to parole yourself early a violent crime is actually easier for folks than it is if you have a, a cannabis uh, conviction. So there's a misconception that we're not locking people up for cannabis anymore. We are locking up people for cannabis anymore, and we still have a lot of people locked up. Kevin Allen down in Louisiana, he just got, re he, he was doing life because it was a third strike. He sold $20 worth of weed to an undercover cop. That was his third strike, serving life. He we we managed to get him another hearing in front of uh, I'm not sure if it was the Supreme Court or or right below the Supreme Court and the judge sent him from to 35 years hard labor in Louisiana which is a, basically a death sentence I challenge anybody listening to this to go down into that prison in Louisiana and do 35 years of hard labor and come out alive you're going to come out of that prison feet first most likely and and that's what happened to Kevin Allen. Now we're still fighting for him and we'll always fight for him. But my God, it was just this. This is the kind of thing that's really, really happening out there in our name, in your name, in the taxpayer's name. Um, and, you know, the public overwhelmingly supports legalization. Eighty percent, I think, for adult use, something like ninety five percent for medical. Yeah. And 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 if you ask should people get locked up for the, doing hard time for this sort of thing? Um, they'll say no, they should not. Um, and, and almost all Americans now are one or two degrees of separation removed from somebody who's been impacted by the war on cannabis. And um, if you come from a more privileged background, maybe your life didn't get ruined. Maybe you, you know, were able to pay a fine or maybe you got a misdemeanor instead of a felony or whatever, and you were able to rebuild your life. But there's a lot of people who haven't uh, been able to um, rebuild their lives after being so disrupted by law enforcement with, with cannabis. So Last Prisoner Project is trying to call attention to that and, and, and help as much as we can. You know, I wish I could tell you that we get, we get thousands of prisoners out every year. We don't. It's more like dozens, um, not hundreds or thousands, uh, because post-conviction is very difficult. You have to have a clemency or you have to have a pardon by, you know, a president or a governor. And those folks are very risk-averse to pardon or grant clemency to anybody, especially, I don't know if you remember Willie Horton, um, but that whole debacle that happened in the late 80s really scared a lot of elected officials and, and politicians. And so, you know, just keep them locked up is the safer route. Um, you know, you don't have to worry about somebody that you furloughed doing something bad that's going to blow back on you later on. You just keep them locked up. Keep them locked up. 
So that that it's it's just very difficult. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. So you have been doing this for a long time. You've had your hands in a lot of different projects and you are moving on now, I understand, to some other bigger things. Right. Yes, I did recently resign from the board of directors for Last Prisoner Project. Still a co-founder, still heavily connected to the organization. You know what? I'm in a stage in my career where I want to build things. I don't want to run things after they've been built. (laughs) Uh, I did that for 12 years at Harborside. I ran the day-to-day operations of a very large company and organization, 250 employees, you know, over $100 million in revenue. Um, And... So I've been there and done that. Um, Last Prisoner Project has a really talented team of people that are running the organization. I feel really good about where it's at. Uh, So, yes, I have a consulting and strategic advising co-op, a little business I have. And um, what's nice about that is I get to work on more than one company or more than one organization at a time. And I can really build the industry not just nationally, but internationally. I'm, I'm building a cannabis media company in Scandinavia. I'm doing industrial hemp in Ecuador and Mexico. I've got clients in New York. I've got clients in uh, all over the country. Mississippi, I actually did a little work in um, uh, too. Um, once they had their medical framework up and running, I had a client there. And so it's, 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 that keeps me very, very busy and, you know, just sharing my knowledge and experience with other entrepreneurs and other leaders, I, I, I really enjoy building organizations from the ground up. That's really what I love to do. That's what I'm really good at. And, um, and so that's what I do now is I help other entrepreneurs uh, with those projects. And, you know, my hope is that <clears throat> I'd like to own and operate again. Um, someday when the frameworks have improved a little bit and it's possible for, you know, a small or medium regional entrepreneur like myself uh, to actually build something that that's profitable and, and does well right now. Certainly in my home state in California, it's not possible to do that with the current framework. One more quick question before we have to wrap this up here. It seems like most dispensaries have a decent quality, you know, good flower, but it's not like, it's not like the weed we had back in the nineties where like, you know, the smell would fill an entire house. Did legalization affect the quality of cannabis that most of us can have access to at least on, you know, like the West coast. I'm not sure if it's a nationwide problem or not. Am I imagining things or am I just like romanticizing what quality was like back in the day? No, I think what you're speaking to is very widespread all through the industry, all through the country. I call it drowning in mids, um, mid-grade cannabis. It's not bad. It's not swag, but it just doesn't do like it did back in the day, right? Um, We used to do this thing in college. You stick the butt on your forehead and see how long it can stay on your forehead (laughs) without touching it, right? And that was one of the ways we graded the weed. Um, And um, you're right. It would smell up the whole room if you got some of that. 
um, old school skunk or something like that. Um, I think there's a lot of different root causes this problem, but basically no one's figured out how to grow that top shelf cannabis at scale or very few people have. Um, and it's really craft cannabis because in the nineties and before legalization, you had to be craft. You didn't have a choice. You couldn't have scale. You get busted. Uh, you go to jail for a long, long time. And so people paid attention to their grows. They paid attention to their genetics. They paid attention to the each plant and they gave it maybe not obsessive love like some growers did, but attention at bare minimum. They gave it more attention than the plants are getting today and the genetics are getting today. We have this hot viroid happening now, which is just tearing through um, the supply chain um, and um, it's really having an impact on the quality of, 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 of scaled weed, All certainly in California and in most places in the country, because most places source their genetics from California. And, you know, the hot thyroid is, is, is in something like 90% of the weed here that's grown from clone. Um, uh, so, so there's a lot of reasons that you're seeing that you're drowning in mids but i think ultimately it comes down to we can't grow top shelf cannabis at scale and we don't have enough craft producers in the licensed market because they can all do much better underground we we kind of have a joke here in california <laughs> if you want good weed don't go into the dispensary um get it from somebody you know <laughs> So, um, and that's too bad, uh, you know, because uh, it, 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 it's not helpful to, again, that, that speaks to the dual market problem. Yeah. But I'm, I, lo I love flour too. I'm not into vapes. I like hash and I like flour. Vapes are only for when I'm out in public. I have to be discreet or I'm at the theater or something. It's intermission. I go outside, take a few vapes. And, and I agree with you. It's, it is frustrating um, luckily, I know some craft producers that are in the market. I know which dispensaries that they're on the shelf, yeah. um, and I can go grab them. But but I have an inside track that ninety nine percent of consumers don't have. Yeah, I bet you got the good hookup. I'm sure. <laughs> hey, awesome! Thanks for joining us today, and let's uh, be sure to touch base next time there's any big cannabis news. Right? Anytime, Jesse. It was a great interview. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. Andrew D'Angelo, ladies and gentlemen, our own in-house cannabis expert here on Newsweek Radio. Until next time, I'm Jesse Edwards.